Today on Ag News Daily. It's very hard to sit there and say in broad strokes, oh, everybody ought to buy it. August 9th here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. My name is Jennifer and let's jump into some weather as this morning when I walked outside of my apartment, it was raining. But storms are continued to be expected in parts of Iowa and Illinois today with some becoming severe. Some flash flooding may occur as heavy rains fall in the area, the National Weather Service said in a report early this morning. Strong wind gusts and lightning are of concern. Flooding is expected in parts of southern Illinois as another round of thunderstorms are forecasted for later today and tonight. The main hazards will be damaging winds, heavy rain, and flash flooding and lightning. Large hail and isolated tornadoes cannot be ruled out. Storms may hang around tomorrow and return over the weekend when heavy rain and lightning are expected. In central Kansas, some small hail and gusty winds are expected, along with heavy rainfall that could flood some low-lying areas. It's going to get hot in southeastern Kansas as heat indexes are projected to reach 105 degrees Fahrenheit on Friday and Saturday, the National Weather Service reported. And staying on the topic of weather, but more in relation to cattle, hundreds of cattle died in Iowa from extreme heat and humidity in late July, the state and livestock producers said, as the world recorded its hottest month ever. The deaths show the toll of severe weather on farm animals and food production. The losses further trim the U.S. cattle herd, which is already the smallest in decades after drought drove ranchers to slaughter more cows due to a lack of pasture to feed them. While not massive in number, producers said the recent deaths were unusual. Cattle also died from heat in Kansas and Nebraska, state officials reported. Iowa's Department of Natural Resources told Reuters it received a request on July 31st to dispose of approximately 370 cows that died due to heat in western Iowa. Gary Vetter, who raises cattle in western Iowa, said he worked to protect local herds, but about 53 cattle died at three of his neighbors' feedlots during the last week in July. He is usually most dangerous for heaviest cattle that weigh more than 1,000 pounds, but temperatures and humidity spiked so high that even lighter cattle, about 700 pounds, died, Vetter reported. In Carroll, Iowa, near Vetter's farm, the heat index climbed to 117 degrees on July 28th. 200 miles away in the northeastern Iowa city of Riceville, Bob Noble said two of his cattle died in different pens, the first deaths he has linked to heat in years. The 1,100-pound to 1,200-pound carcasses will be composted. They just couldn't handle the extra stress of the heat and the humidity, said Noble, who is the president of Iowa's Cattle Association. Iowa is the fifth largest cattle-producing state and had 630,000 cattle in feedlots on July 1st, according to the USDA. The USDA offers disaster assistance that may help compensate producers whose cattle died. Kansas received a request for disposal of 50 cattle due to heat stress this summer, said Matthew Lara, spokesman for the Kansas Department of Health and Environment. Last summer, the state had at least 2,000 cattle deaths when an early June heat wave caught producers off guard. In Nebraska, phones started ringing at the State Departments of Environment and Energy on July 26th and 27th, spokeswoman Amanda Wyoda said. 
On the line were informal phone calls from producers who have experienced cattle deaths due to heat, she said, without providing death tolls. Nebraska feedlots house 2.3 million cattle, while Kansas feedlots have 2.4 million. To prevent losses, Kansas State University in June updated an online weather tool, Kansas Mesonet, to use National Weather Service forecasts to predict comfort levels for cattle a week ahead of time. Previously, the tool provided day of weather data, said Christopher Chip Redmond, a meteorologist and manager of Kansas Mesonet, but by then it's too late. Looking towards our ethanol story for the day, attorney generals in Iowa and Nebraska have filed suit against the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to force it to end the federal waiver for a common ethanol blend to be sold during the summer in those states. Here's the idea behind the lawsuit. Eliminating that waiver would force refiners to reduce the volatility of gasoline that is blended with ethanol to produce E10, which is 10% ethanol and dominates the fuel market. If that happens, the blends could be increased to 15% ethanol without violating federal summertime fuel standards. That has the potential to be a boon for the ethanol industry, which is important for Iowa farmers because more than half of their corn is used to produce the fuel. State lawmakers adopted legislation last year to require gas stations to sell E15 with some exceptions. But the change has also the potential to increase the cost of fuel and diminish available supplies, the EPA has concluded. Governors in eight states asked the EPA in April 22 to eliminate the waiver for E10 in their states. Citing the increased pollution caused by evaporation of the fuel during warm months as a maneuver to boost E15 sales. Kansas and North Dakota later rescinded their requests, while Missouri and Ohio joined the efforts. E10 has a federal volatility requirement waiver since 1990, and since then, its sales have ballooned. More than 98% of gasoline sold in the U.S. is E10, according to the Department of Energy. In 2019, the EPA extended that waiver to E15, but a federal appeals court rejected the move in 2021 and said the agency lacked the authority to make change. The EPA issued emergency waivers to allow summertime E15 sales in 22 and 23. The agency proposed a rule change in March that grants the state's request to cease the E10 waiver starting in 24, but it has not finalized it. It's unclear what has delayed the rule change. The agency declined to comment for this article that I am currently reading from Successful Farming because of the pending lawsuit, which was filed Monday. In its proposed rule, the EPA estimated the change would cut fuel supplies to states by about 2%. That's because refineries would likely remove butane from the gasoline to make it less volatile. There are also uncertainties about how quickly the companies that produce and distribute the fuels can adjust their procedures. And keeping on our news track and looking more internationally, South America's Mercosur trade bloc and the European Union should shelve talks over a free trade agreement with current environmental demands from the EU as unacceptable, Paraguay's president-elect Santiago Pina told Reuters. Pina, who takes office next week, said that the European bloc's proposals would hinder major soy exporter Paraguay's economic development. Paraguay is one of four Mercosur member states, along with Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay. 
The comment penis strongest on the trade talks since winning election in April, underscoring rising tensions as the European and South American blocs race to finalize a deal, long delayed due to doubts over Brazil's climate action commitments. The European Commission, the EU's executive, said it was fully committed to push the EU-Mercosur agreement towards the finish line before the end of the year. The South American countries, home to huge swaths of the Amazon, the Chaco Forest, and key wetlands are major exporters of soy, corn, and beef. They have increasingly pushed back against environmental demands from the EU, saying they amount to European protectionism and would hurt local production. Mercosur officials are working on a counterproposal before meeting with EU negotiators. There are some hopes for reaching an agreement later this year on the trade deal. From our point of view, Pina said, stated, negotiations should be closed and the decision simply made. Do we want this to happen or do we not want this to happen? More information on this trade deal can be found on the Reuters website. And looking at my final news report for the day, as economists are urging caution to farmers looking to buy farmland. An annual report from the USDA shows that cropland values continue to increase, and an ag economist says producers should be cautious before buying any land. Jim Jansen with the University of Nebraska at Lincoln says prices are unlikely to improve anytime soon. If the rising cost of that asset, coupled with higher interest rates, are a challenge that many operations are going to be facing, and the ability to make that down payment or get favorable terms on their loan are two major considerations operations need to be thinking about. He tells Brownfield that prices are at an all-time high across the Corn Belt, partly due to the parcel's ability to produce a good crop. The earning potential has become capitalized, which means people are piling their earnings or capitalizing their procedures that they made off of that land or other parcels of land into the purchase of that asset, meaning they are willing to bid that price up. Jansen says the cost of borrowing has been good for farmers, but that is changing because of higher interest rates. And that is something that will take effect more so in the future years to come. But historically, interest rates have been low, and that's some of the reason we're seeing these record prices. Quote, USDA's 2023 land values summary shows cropland values increased 8% to $5,460 per acre on average, and real estate values increased 7.4% to $4.08 per acre. Cropland values increased by 16.6% in Kansas, 13.8% in Nebraska, 12.9% in South Dakota, 11.8% in Wisconsin, 11.3% in Michigan, 10% in Minnesota, 8.6% in Iowa, 8.6% in Ohio, 8.4% in Indiana, 7% in Illinois, 6.7% in Missouri, and 2.3% in Arkansas. Lots and lots of percentages, but in the meantime, we are going to jump into our markets. Starting out the afternoon with our September corn, it is down th- four and three quarters, leaving it at 481. December corn in the red, four and a half at 494 and a quarter. Moving into September beans, they are in the green, one and three quarters, leaving it at 1355 and a quarter. November beans are also up two and a half, leaving it at 1308 and a half. Moving into our September hard red winter wheat, we are in the red nine even, leaving it at 761 and a half. 
Spring, September spring wheat is also down 10 and a half, bringing it to 8.20 and a quarter. Moving into our livestock markets, October live cattle is up 80 cents, bringing it to 181.7. September feeder cattle is up 1.2. September feeder cattle is up 1.2, bringing it to 250.625. Finishing out our markets for the day are our October lean hogs, which are in the red three flat, leaving it at 81.575. For our interview of the day, we have Josh Linville with Stonex. So let's jump into it. Today, listeners, we have Josh Linville with Stonex joining us. And Josh, could you give us a little bit rundown of who you are and what Stonex is? Yeah, I'm the uh, the vice president of the fertilizer division for Stonex. I uh, grew up in Northwest Missouri, family farm, uh, just between St. Joe and Kansas City. Uh, went to the University of Missouri. Don't hold that against me. I was very <laughs> partial to it, very big fan family-wise, um, and been in the fertilizer industry ever since. So a little bit over two decades has been in the fertilizer space. But Stonex, we are a, a global uh, brokerage firm, I believe, just recently found out we reached fortune number 58 on the list. So that was pretty exciting news. But, you know, very big into the brokerage, very big into the global markets, things like that. On the fertilizer side, we focus on getting a lot more information out there, trying to help, uh, you know, an industry that doesn't get a lot of information for an input that's probably one of the biggest cost per acre that's out there but very little information to find so trying to help out there trying to grow the fertilizer paper market and just you know trying to make sense of it all absolutely and touching on fertilizer like you just mentioned the prices have been all over the place from what i've been reading and we have all been listening to fertilizer prices have been high but on the flip side this past month or so it looks like they have been starting to drop could you Walk us through roughly what that has looked like for everybody. Yeah, the last two to three years have been very, very trying. I'm guessing most of the listeners here are probably shaking their heads yes or vehemently shaking their heads yes. Uh, we have seen values that if they didn't reach record high values, they got very, very close. And it was a tremendous number of things that came together. I mean, a number of things that nobody could have ever forecasted. But you had a situation where Russia invaded Ukraine. It looked like we were going to lose their exports because the world was stopping to do business with them. The Chinese government was stepping in and reducing and restricting the export of their fertilizer, being one of the major exporters. It was a big deal. Uh, Demand shot up. Uh, Grain prices were higher. So just all of these things came together. And it's interesting because the presentation I typically do, the first whole section was literally going through the last two to three years to show every event and what its impact was on the price. So that got us where we were, is a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, and a lot of restrictions on the global supply side. Since that point, um, obviously now we saw a lot of companies pull out of Russia, but fertilizer flows have continued. We did not lose those exports like we had feared. The Chinese government has loosened the export restrictions. There's been a little bit of tightening here recently, but they've dropped those back quite a bit. So the world is returning to normal again. And because we're returning to normal, because that fear is out of the marketplace, or a lot of the fear is out of the marketplace, prices have subsided. And I ran these numbers earlier this week on Twitter. I was having a conversation with somebody, and I looked week versus week. So I looked at last week's end-of-week pricing 
versus a year ago, exactly one year ago today. And this is looking at NOLA, New Orleans, Louisiana, for the fertilizer market is the equivalent of Chicago for the corn market. And it's the most liquid is where we track values. When I looked at urea, we were down 37.5%. UAN was down 40%. And hydrous was down 47%. DAP was down 32%. Potash, a whopping 55% lower. So these values are down substantially. Uh, it, it's created a much lower input situation for the farm gates on the chemicals, do the same thing. So that's a little bit of help. Let's face it, the prices are never going to be low enough for everybody to be happy, but they are significantly lower than what they were. Absolutely. That's what it has looked like. And looking kind of forward through this some more, with the prices having been dropping a little bit over the past month, what can we expect in the coming months of fall for the prices? That's awfully hard to say because a lot of it depends on what happens around the world. Um, and that's one thing we really like to focus on what's going on here at home because that's what matters. That's our local market is what truly matters to us. But things that happen halfway around the world obviously have a huge impact on our pricing structure because we are part of this world market, whether we like to think it or not. And so you know, talk about China. The government had allowed their return of exports. Well, the CIQs, the Chinese uh, inspection quarantine period, had been as far down as 15 days. Well, all of a sudden, we're starting to hear that that's rolling back up into 70 days. That is starting to spook the market and move some price ideas higher. And that's on the urea side, and that's on the phosphate side. Uh, obviously, Russia continues to invade Ukraine, and there always remains a, a worry that something might escalate there. Now, that's a very to see Russian exports be completely cut off is an extremely low probability, but a very high impact situation. So we don't expect it to happen, but we certainly need to watch it. Um, you know, production rates, things like that, uh, demand for next year. So there's a lot of things that are still going into it. And we have actually, since we've hit our lows on a lot of these inputs this summer, we've actually started to see pricing jump back higher, not, not back to the levels we had seen, but certainly higher than what the lows have been longevity of that we're not quite sure there's a lot of uh, we're still kind of rerunning some of our demand models looking at things like that but again you go through all those percentages of how far down it is i mean we're talking anywhere from 30 to 55 percent lower the good thing and the thing that really helps the farm gate out there is the fact that when i look at i like to look today at december 24 corn because any fertilizer we buy today is going to be used to apply this fall or next spring to raise next year's crop so that's just the way i look at it no, nobody has to agree with me. It's just the way I look at it. So when I look at December 24 corn today versus December 23 corn, same time last year, that value is only down 12%. So that ratio, that relationship, that value is much, much better than what it was 12 months ago. Most definitely. And I know looking at all of these prices, especially with corn, I know, I know a few personal farmers from my hometown who are wishing they would have sold their corn sooner rather than later, but kind of looking at that, but on the fertilizer side and buying, what do you suggest and recommend for producers right now? And this is one of those things. It's very hard to sit there and say in broad strokes, oh, everybody ought to buy it because I don't know every farmer's, their structure. I don't know how they operate. I don't know their numbers. So everybody needs to look at it from their own perspective. But I can say when I look at a lot of these values and I look at it compared to the grain price, they look very, very good. Um, and that's one of the things that we push. I know a lot of times we're always trying to sit there and say, oh, we want to buy the fertilizer for low. We want to sell the grain to high. And listen, 
if a person can sit there and show me that they have done that consecutively and not missed, I've got a job for you. You don't need to farm anymore. We've got a better paying job for you. Most of the time, that's a very, very difficult thing to do. What we like to do is rather than sit there and look at the flat price of fertilizer or flat price of grain and try and determine what's good, what's bad, what's high, what's low, we like, like to look at it from a package deal. We like to sit there and say, listen, if we're going to buy phosphate, for example, we want to sell grain against it if that ratio, ratio that relationship is good. Because that it, it's like, a lot like a, uh, manufacturing around the world. They don't sit there and just say, well, I'm going to go, you know, if I'm building a widget, I don't want to sit there and try and call the low of the plastics market or metal market or whatever it is and try and sell the widget at the highest. They're trying to get that relationship. And when that turns into a profitable relationship, they secure both sides of it. So when we see those values looking good, that's when we want to do the same thing here. Like I said, it, it's hard to sit there and say and cover every single farmer and say this works for every single person listening. It, it, that's just not reality. But I can tell you the opportunity today is so much better than what it was 12 months ago. Absolutely. And some amazing insights to provide for our listeners, for sure. And Josh, kind of like we talked about before, there is so much to cover in fertilizer. And I will never know what all we need to be talking about. So is there anything else that you think our listeners need to know about what is happening with the fertilizer market in general right now? Uh, one thing I do think that needs to be tracked that is going to be a little bit different this year than what the last few years have been. We ended the last fertilizer year. We run our fertilizer years from July 1 through June 30. So we just wrapped up the fertilizer year 23 on June 30th, started a new year on July 1st, of course. And typically speaking, there's usually a healthy amount of fertilizer inventory left over to carry into the next year in order to carry, you know, help some of the wheat run, the late spring applications, the upper Mississippi River closure dates, things like that. That is not the case this year. We ended the last fertilizer year extremely empty on phosphate, potash, and urea. UAN inventories actually ended up tighter than what we expected them to be. The only one that really felt like it had plentiful inventories leading to the summertime was anhydrous. So to sit there, what I'm trying to point out is that logistically, there needs to be more conversations. And I am a very, very big advocate for I think that there needs to be more discussions, not less, between the farm gate and the retailer. I know for a lot of folks out there, that relationship, it's almost seen as a almost confrontation, if you will. It makes sense, right? I mean, the retailer is trying to sell something. The farmer is trying to buy something. That's just the way that that works. But when you look at some of the risks that we have seen over the last two to three years, when you see some of the difficulties went through the spring because – the supply chain was unwilling to step out ahead of it and take ownership of a price that was falling. And so product didn't show up. Um, when you look at all the risk up and down the chain of it, we're actually advocating for more conversations between the two. And I'm not sitting there saying you have to do everything the retailer tells you to do. And I'm saying the retailer has to bend to every whim of the farmer. But more conversations need to be had for planning purposes. The farmers should be giving, having more conversations, say, hey, here's kind of my plan. Here's what I'm thinking of my fertilizer uh, programs. Here's how much I'll need. And here's my timing on it. And so the retailer can have a little bit more of a fighting chance of having that stuff in place. It's just, it's not to sit there and say, I don't ever like to use the, use the term shortage or outage because we're in a capitalistic market. At a certain price, you will find what you need to get your hands on. You just may not like that price. But the earlier we can attack this thing, that earlier we can start having those conversations and have a strategy together, 
the better chance we have of getting through a fall season, a spring season. And I know there's been a lot of people, myself included, who have cried wolf before and nothing has ever happened. But you look at some of these situations around the world, it very quickly shows just how how close to the brink we are of sometimes getting to a, a faltering, not building the product in place on time. So that's something we're going to continue to push. More conversations there, more more strategy sessions there. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Josh. We really appreciate it. And you shared some amazing information that our listeners definitely needed to get some more information on. If anyone would like to reach out and learn more about what we chatted about today, where is the best way they can do that? Um, we're always on Twitter. Uh, try to put information out there on the markets at least once a day during the week. Uh, you can find me at, at jlinvillefert. Um if you need, you can email me at josh.linville at stonex.com or you can go to the Stonex website and find me there. Perfect. Thank you again, Josh. Anytime. Thank you. That was a great conversation I had with Josh Linville of Stonex. And hopefully you all are looking forward to some more good conversations through the remainder of this week. But in the meantime, we're going to let you go.